Bible and turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter number three, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. Galatians 3 and verse 1, and what a great morning to be with God's people in God's house. Thank you for the good singing this morning, and I'm looking forward to the music this week, and, and uh, that choir, that sounds like a great idea. Thank you. May I get a part of that? Thank you, Brother Robertson, for being here as well, and, and uh, just the music that exalts our Savior and it magnifies the Word of God. I, when you're born again, there's a great song that we have, a song of praise to our God. And uh, the world can't sing that. They can try. They don't do a very good job of it. But when we uh, know our Savior, what a difference he makes. God bless you this morning. Thank you for a good, warm welcome. I'm excited to be here in these days. Every time every time we come, which is like every other year or so, that's all that Glenda can stomach me, I think. so. <laughs> but, you know, it's always wonderful to come to the property. And, and every time it's like, wow, you just, what can you possibly do on, on, this, on the top of this hill? And you folks have just done a tremendous job. And every time... It, I know I'm in the South, so I could say it's gooder and gooder. You can't say that ever at Washington, but you can say that here. And, and it's exciting. My, you've done such a great job, and thank you for giving and laboring. And, and uh, every time, it's just brighter. It's just a uh, just great job. Just, uh, and it's worthy of our Savior, isn't it? You've you just done such a good job with that. It's just a real blessing. I'm excited about these days. I trust there's a burden on your heart, a neighbor, a loved one. And, and I know sometimes you say, you know, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, and, and I've invited that guy next door. I've invited that lady over the backyard fence, you know, 999 times. And it's amazing what happens on number 1,000. It's just, uh, you just never know, do you? You don't know when somebody's searching and looking. And, and for a world that has absolutely no answers and is powerful, we come to the Word of God, and thus saith the Lord. And, and uh, let me just encourage you to ask the Lord for that person who's on your heart to make that effort in these days. We'd love to see the Lord stir our hearts for revival and, and uh, we'd love for a time of harvest. It's always a great joy when somebody's saved and they become baptized, become part of a church and serve the Lord. And we'd love to see the Lord now we stir our hearts. Boy, we desperately need that. Uh, I think we look at the news and say, boy, do we need the Lord to work in our hearts. But uh, my men and ladies and boys and girls without Christ need to be saved. So we trust the Lord for his harvest in these days. You have your Bible to the book of Galatians, chapter number three. And, and when you come to the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul is all stirred up. I mean, you know, I get the idea it didn't take much for him to get stirred up. But brother, when he got stirred up, get out of the way. And, and, and I think the reason, and it certainly is a great reason, is in chapter two and, and verse number 14. When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. That was the thing that set him off. You know, sometimes we get stirred up about things that really don't matter and, and, and we get all worked up about the latest news story, but you know, you know and I know by this time next week there'll be another latest news story. And, and we get worked up about the things that don't count. But when Paul was stirred up, it was over something that mattered for eternity. He said, I am looking around and looking at people that are not right according to the gospel. And my, in the first two chapters of Galatians, the man takes no prisoners. This is a beautiful thing, especially if you're a, a, you know, a preacher from like New England. This is good stuff. I mean, in chapter one, verse number eight, he said, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you. He said, I don't care if an angel comes down from heaven with a glow about his face. If that angel is preaching a gospel that is different from the gospel of the Bible, the gospel meaning the story that Jesus died, was buried and rose again, meaning that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
life. There's no other way to heaven. If somebody is preaching another gospel, he said, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven. Let the angel be a curse. That's an incredibly strong word. In other places in our New Testament, that word reads the word damnation. Incredibly powerful word. Paul said, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven preaching a wrong gospel. How about in chapter 2, verse 11? When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. I got to tell you, by the you know we like Peter; he's he's pretty good on our list. But in the first century, by the time Galatians was written, Peter was legendary. I, I mean, you know, they would talk about Peter in hushed tones. Peter was the guy who was the first one to go inside the empty tomb. And I think to his dying breath, John would tell you, "But I got there first. But I got there first. But hey, sorry, man. Peter was the first one in there, and, and Peter was the one who went up on the mountain, and he could say, "Mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ." Why, Peter was the one who could say, I heard the voice of God. And Peter was the guy who actually walked on the water. Now, you might say he didn't get very far, but I got to tell you, he's gotten a whole lot farther than I've ever gotten. And, and that's Peter. I mean, by now, he is legendary. You know, you, know, you know how humans are. They love to put humans on the pedestal. And they love to raise up preachers. And they love to raise up people. And, and by this time, Peter could do no wrong. And Paul said, well, I don't care if it's Dr. Peter himself. If he's not right and in this case, there was an issue. He said, so kind of we put it, I got in his face. I was stood him to the face because he was to be blamed. I don't care if it's an angel from heaven, he said. I don't care if it's Peter himself. A little bit earlier in chapter two, he said, my words now, I don't care if it's the seminary professors out of Jerusalem. You know, the, the scholars would come from the schools of religion and, and they would pull, follow Paul pretty much everywhere it went, he seemed. And, and when Paul would preach Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, you can almost hear it the scholars, you know, and, and they come along and, well, yes, 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 Paul is correct. Jesus, you must believe on the Lord Jesus. But after you are saved, then we've got an extra dose of religion that'll get you in the right path. And, you know, Galatians is in the Bible for two great reasons. The first reason and the most obvious is that we are not saved by works. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. But there is a second reason equally important. Galatians is in the Bible first so we know we're not saved by works. But number two, we must understand that we don't stay saved by our works. The Jesus who saves us is the Jesus who keeps us. And no one, we don't need some extra special dose of grace. We don't need a, a second work. Nope, the Jesus who saves us is the Jesus who keeps us saved. We don't keep ourselves saved. And now these professors, it would seem, followed Paul everywhere he went the, from the great schools of learning in Jerusalem. And, and they would say things like, well, you need Jesus to save you. But if you want to keep your salvation, you have to become Jewish and, and do the right rights of Judaism. And Paul said, no, no, no. I don't care if it's an angel from heaven. I don't care if it's Dr. Peter himself. I don't care if it's the, 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 the great teachers from the seminary in Jerusalem. And, and my particular favorite one in chapter two, he said, I don't even care if it's the big boys from the conference. You know, the word conference is found one time in the Bible, just one time. And it's not a pretty thing. Paul said in Galatians 2, those who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Now, I kind of noticed something since I started preaching, which 
was a little earlier than your pastor, but it was still a long time ago, a long time ago. I used to tell, talk about it, how many years, you know, we've been doing this in years. Now it's kind of in decades, you know what I'm trying to say? It's not good. And, and it's kind of in decades now, but I remember when it started, you know, we used to have preaching meetings, preaching. Preachers get together and preach to preachers. We have preaching. And, and, and now we live in a society where people don't want you to preach at me. So that word preach has kind of been laid aside. We have let our culture redefine things. And it's a lot easier to have a conference. However, in the Bible, preaching is more than 110 times in the New Testament. And the word conference is found one time in the Bible. You know, when you have preaching, you preach. When you have a conference, you confer. And it's just fascinating to me. I mean, make a big deal out of something that's not maybe a big deal. But, but I just find that it's not Bible terminology. Let's just put it that way. And, and Paul said, you know, the big boys in the conference, they added nothing to me. I don't care how famous they are. I don't care how famous their blog is. I don't care if they're number one at Amazon. I don't care who they are. Paul said, the big boys in the conference, the angel from heaven, Dr. Peter himself, or the great teachers from Jerusalem, if they're not right according to the gospel, they've got an appointment with me. Boy, that's powerful. So now we come to Galatians chapter three and verse number one, and he's at it again. O foolish Galatians who have bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. My Father, we ask for your help as we open the Bible, the words of our God. May we listen with ears that are ready to hear, and, and then as we sang this morning, ready to trust and obey, to hear and to do, hearers and doers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It might be a good time to stop and, and look at Paul's motive for this because it'd be easy to just kind of skip through the book of Galatians and say, man, this guy is breathing fire. He's picking fights with angels from heaven, seminary professors, conference speakers, and Peter himself. Now, after he's done, there's not a whole lot of people left to battle with. But you know, there is a motive here. And, and I think you see it in two verses. In chapter 1, verse 11, he said, I certify you, brethren, and if that weren't enough, in 419, he said, Galatian people, you're my little children. You know, it was Paul that God sent to what we would call Turkey. Galatia wasn't a city, it was kind of a region. And, and it was Paul that went there 2,000 years ago, give or take a few years. And, and in the day, it was a region that was just laden down with malaria. And there are some medical people who think that Paul may have contracted malaria and perhaps bringing some of the problems on his life later, who knows. But, but you know, whatever the reason, everywhere Paul went, his health was at risk, more his flesh was at risk. It seemed like he spent more nights in prison than anywhere else. And Paul said, I did it all to win people to Christ. He said, I did it all to see my brothers and sisters not only get saved and become family members, but then I did it so that we could establish a church and, and see them baptized and see them grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. And so he's got the dual terms, doesn't he? He says, first, you're my little children. You're my babies. I led you to Christ. I'm your spiritual daddy. But now, now in a church, he says, you're my brothers, my babies and my brothers. It's amazing how that works works. I'm your spiritual father. I brought you to Christ. But now, because you and I are, are saved, we're brothers and sisters. So Paul says, you're my family. And I'm not going to let some professor from Jerusalem, I'm not going to let some angelic looking creature, I'm not even going to let Peter himself or any of the conference speakers, I'm not going to let them come and damage my, my brothers and my babies. Paul's like a mother here. Paul is hovering over his children like a mother hen, saying, I'm going to care for him and, and, and I'm going to stand up. And it may not make me popular with the brethren, but he 
said, I'm going to stand up and protect my babies. I'm going to protect my brothers. I, I don't want you to be fooled and I don't want you to be deceived. And, and those are the words, aren't they, in verse number one. They're, they're two pretty strong words. He said, oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? I mean, here's the apostle Paul looking at his babies and his brothers and saying, oh, foolish Galatians. And, and you know, through American eyes, we look at that and, whoa, you know, there really isn't a nice way to call somebody a fool in America. I mean, that word's kind of got one meaning and, you know, there's a few fries missing in a Happy Meal here. I mean, when you call somebody a fool, there's no soft way to do that. However, in Bible times, the word fool, can I, I don't know how to say it, maybe is a little broader in meaning than it is for us. Das is pretty narrow. You're a fool, man. But, but in Bible times, the word fool could mean, you know, you, you're missing something. But it could also mean that you're lacking discernment. And remember that story on the road to Emmaus? Everybody's got their place. I wish I could have been there in the Bible. Do you know, that's where I wish I could have been. I mean, you get to heaven. I don't know how it works. You go to the library. You get the DVD. Okay, in heaven, it's up in the cloud. I get that. But, you know, uh, I, oh, that's bad, man. Don't worry. That's the worst I got. I fear Sunday school, just get the worst we got, Doc, and we'll take it from there. But, you know, I, that's, what, that's, that's where I would. People say, man, I want to be with Elijah, and I want to be with Daniel, and I would have want to watch the three boys in the fire. But, but, you know, everybody's got their spot. I would love to have been on that road to Emmaus. Remember two disciples, Cleopas, and we don't know the other, something his wife, maybe another man, and... And they're making their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a suburb. Not, not all that far away, but if you're walking, it's quite a distance. And, and you know, they're discouraged. They, they said, well, we've heard rumors about an empty tomb. But, but, you know, they were followers. They loved Jesus. And the last thing they saw was him on the cross. And, and they're discouraged, and they don't know what to do next. And all of a sudden, Jesus is with them. Boy, that would have been something. And then what happens next? Jesus preaches Christ from the Old Testament. Wow. I, I think my brother would agree with me. You know, that there, there's sometimes when you preach, it's kind of like pulling teeth, you're a dentist. But sometimes preaching is just pleasurable, and it always is pleasurable in a sense. But, but the, uh, for me anyway, the, the most fun is to preach Christ in the Old Testament. It is rich, and it is glorious. But can you imagine listening to Jesus do this? I got to tell you, how many times were you laughing? You said, well, I never saw that. I never, you mean, really? Malachi here, really? From Genesis to Malachi, Christ in the Old Testament. Brother, you talk about rich. Checking that DVD out in heaven is just going to be special. But you know, when they got to, to, to the city of Emmaus, that little village there, the Lord Jesus had something to say. He said to them, oh, fools and slow of heart. And I used to read that and say, but these guys were disciples to the very end. And they were at Calvary when everybody else forsook them and fled. And Jesus said they were fools. And, and my problem is I'm looking at that through American eyes. You're a fool. You've got some real issues. But a fool in New Testament times could mean somebody that just hadn't put it together. They hadn't added it all up. And, and as Jesus certainly was using that sense with those men, so the Lord, G or so Paul is doing the same with the uh, disciples in Galatia. Oh, fools, I don't want... I want you to be fools. I want you to add it up. I want you to have discernment. You missed something, and I need to help you here because if we are fooled, the next thing that happens in verse 1 is we are bewitched. It's a word that means to cast a spell, an evil eye, and that can happen, can it? 
I mean, it can happen in independent Baptist churches if we're not careful. I mean, first step, we lack discernment because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And because sometimes we don't choose Bible answers or we don't search the scriptures to see if these things are so. We don't study to show ourselves approved unto God. If we are not careful, we can be under a spiritual spell. And I'm afraid that describes a lot more people than we'd like to think. There are people this morning that don't, quite know what the Bible says, but they do know what their favorite blogger says. They're not sure what the Bible says, but they do know what the guy on TV or the lady on TV says. And if we are not careful before long, we fall under the influence of a human when we ought to be ourselves studying to show ourselves approved unto God. If we are not careful, we will be fooled and that will turn into a case where we are bewitched. We are now under the teaching of the conference speaker, of the angel from heaven, of Dr. Peter or the seminary professor, when like the Bereans, we ought to be saying, you know, you may be the apostle Paul and we have great respect for you, but we're still going to search the scriptures anyhow and see if these things are so. I got to tell you, I'm looking at verse number one, and if a church of people that was started by the apostle Paul could be fooled and bewitched, then it can happen to me. It can happen to you. And so this morning, let's go to Galatians 3, verse number one, and right from your Bible, I want to give you this morning three things that you need, three questions we need to ask, if I can put it that way because you don't want to be bewitched and I don't want to be fooled. So if we will not be fooled and if we will not be bewitched, well, the word of God not only describes the problem, the word of God gives the answer. So I'm going to give you three things this morning and I'm going to turn them into the form of a question to ask. And usually when a preacher says we got three things, that's preferable over four things, which is better than five things, which is better than a 30-point message. But, but uh, usually when we got three things, our mind says three equal things, not this time. There's an order here. We have to go to number one and ask the question before we do number two, before we go to number three. So these aren't pick your choose, pick and choose what you like. This is an order that Galatians 3 is giving us so we won't be fooled and we won't be bewitched. All right, look again at verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians who have bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth. They are in trouble. They are fooled and bewitched because they are not actively obeying the truth. All right, that begs the question, then does it not, what is truth? And of course, if we were to sit in a liberal seminary, it would take us a semester. If we were to sit at the University of Tennessee, it would take longer than that. And months later, we would come to the conclusion that there is no truth. A few years ago, I read a book written by a professor at Berkeley, an unsaved man, and he called it The Half-Life of Facts. It was really a fascinating admission because the man, basically, the, the, the treatise of the book was that there is no truth. And if we, of course, the science community, you know, if we believe it is true, and it depended on what field of science, but the kind of the average, if we believe something is true for six or seven years, then it's true. Now, it may not be true, but if we believe it's true, it is true. And it's just really enlightening to me because I'm old enough, I can remember I went to school, you know, and they told us there's nine planets out there. You know, okay. And then, remember in the 90s, oh, no, 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 there's eight planets out there. Only now, again, you know, 10 years ago, we're back to nine planets. Now, they've got me confused enough, so I'll admit I have no idea how many are out there, you know. But I do know one of three possibilities. Either A, there are eight planets, B, there are nine planets, or C, there's another number. But, you know, num planets don't come and go every other day. But you see, while you sit here, and I think this morning, you know, there is a set number of planets. I don't know. The science world says, because we believe there are nine, there are nine, even if there's eight or ten. And then when they believe there were eight, there really were eight, because they believe that there were eight. 
In other words, you think, and I think, two plus two is four, but if they decide for six years that two plus two is five, what do you know? I mean, they're right and we're wrong. And could I just say, that's why there's no middle ground here. That's why we can't come to an agreement. That's why when there's compromise, we give up everything and they don't give up anything because we believe in truth and they don't believe in truth. There is no way to get in the middle of this. There is no common ground here. And, and, and that's why the world is so confused because to them, truth changes. But to you and me, it never changes. What is truth? Well, John 17, 17, thy word is truth. So when you look again in verse number one, why are these Galatian people in trouble? It is because they are not actively trusting and obeying, as we sang this morning, the truth, the Bible. So why are they in trouble? Because they are not listening to the Bible. They're listening to the angel, the angelic-looking guy, or they're looking to Peter when he is wrong, or they're listening to the scholars from Jerusalem, or they're listening to the big boys in the conference, but they're not listening to the Bible. So let's put it in the form of a question. If you don't want to be fooled, then if I don't want to be bewitched, it all starts when we ask question number one at the top of the list now, what does the Bible say? It is not what do I feel in my heart. It is not what did I dream when I was sleeping last night. It is not what does my favorite blogger say. It is not what does the expert say. Number one, top of the list, the first thing for a strong Christian, what does the Bible say? I'm going to get in trouble when I stop obeying the truth. You're going to be deceived when you stop obeying the truth. So discerning people who are not fooled and bewitched they always say, what does the Bible say? Boy, there's something special about people like that. You know, people like that aren't going to build a huge church. just doesn't work like that. Because most people, you know, they pretty much want to go to a house of religion this morning and, and get some cotton candy and ice cream. They just want kind of the same thing they heard last week, said again this week, and, and you know, change the flavor of the ice cream, but it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? It's feel good. It's all positive. There's never a convicting message against sin, and, and people just like that. They just want to be spoon-fed certain portions of the Bible, and, and to say that doesn't work would, would certainly be a mistake, wouldn't it? Because humanly speaking, it does work, and if you don't think so, uh, you can just go out on that highway, drive that way or drive that way, and you'll find plenty of examples that it works. But when it comes to people studying to show themselves approved unto God, so there's discernment and there's understanding so that people are not fooled by wrong teaching doctrine or because people don't want to be bewitched and come under the spiritual spell of the big guy or the big lady on TV. That is something entirely different. That comes when people have a conviction. What does the Bible say? You know, you may be the Apostle Paul, but what does the Bible say? Pastor, I love you, but what does the Bible say? It may be I like to read this guy's books, but what does the Bible say? It may be I enjoy that radio broadcast, but what does the Bible say? If you're not going to be fooled and if I am not going to be bewitched, it all starts with the question, what does the Bible say? I have to obey the truth. All right, keep going if you would in verse number one. The Bible tells us not only are these people in trouble because they're not obeying the truth, but look at this at the end of verse one. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. You know, that's a powerful statement. Now, Galatia then, well, still today, Turkey, you know, it's quite the distance from Jerusalem. And, and even now, you, you know, it's not easy to get there. It's never seemingly easy to get anywhere in the Middle East. 
But back then, you'd have to get in a boat, and that's all. You're talking about an incredibly long journey. And, and I guess I couldn't stand here and say nobody in those churches in Galatia was in Jerusalem when Jesus died on the cross. I, I guess you couldn't make that statement. It's conceivably possible, but if it was true, there are very few. But did you see what that says? Jesus Christ had been evidently, that's the word they would use to describe the guy with the signboard on the side of the road dressed up like the Statue of Liberty, you know? That's, that's how they would describe a, a billboard on the side of the highway. It's an advertisement. In other words, like an advertisement, you can't miss it. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ crucified among you, they couldn't miss it. Now, now, maybe somebody was in Jerusalem when Jesus died, but most of those people certainly weren't. And, and of course, you and I, we may feel old enough sometime, but we weren't there. But you know what the Bible is saying? The Apostle Paul is saying, Calvary has become so real to you through your Bible study, through the preaching of the cross, through godly music, years I spent in vanity and pride at Calvary, through godly preaching, through godly music, through godly Bible study, through your own searching of the scriptures, though they weren't there, it's like they were. Their feet weren't at Calvary, but the feet of faith were there. Their eyes did not look on the cross, but the eyes of faith did. It, Calvary had become so real to them that Jesus Christ, like a billboard driving down the highway, Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth, lifted up right in front of you. There he stands, the crucified Son of God. So get the bigger picture. Paul says, I don't want you to be fooled. I don't want you to be bewitched. So number one, you're in trouble when you don't obey the truth. What does the Bible say? After you deal with that, he said, number two, go to the cross. And the question sounds like this. Why did Jesus die? Why did you, you know, you know how much that fixes? Now remember first, the number one, top of the list, go to the Bible. What does the Bible say? If the Bible addresses the question, the case is closed. But you say, after I've gone to the Bible, what do I do now? You go to Calvary. You go to the cross and you say, well, why did Jesus die? Somewhere this morning, probably not too far from this place, a very nice man will stand up in front of a congregation of people in a house of religion, and in front of the people, he will hold a very, very gorgeous little girl, a little baby girl, a handsome little guy, as beautiful as they could be. That little girl's going to be decked out. That little guy's going to have him suit on. I mean, we're talking about a little baby now, the most beautiful baby that you could imagine in the state of Tennessee. A very nice minister is going to stand before the people, show everybody, everybody's going to give the usual oohs and the ahs, and then that same minister is going to hold the baby's arm and depending on where you are, he's going to either take a cup of water and, and kind of pour it over the head of that little infant or maybe even dip his fingers in the water and sprinkle some water on the head of the baby. And then he's going to hold that child up and present it to everyone in that congregation and say, now this baby is a Christian. Why did Jesus die? If that's how, you know, Baptists, we do everything the hard way. So in our church, you know, pastor's going to have to dunk you in the water, get you out of the water, everybody's got to get wet. And obeying the Bible's got its consequences, doesn't it? But, but you understand, if, if pastors just take you, dunk you into the water, pull you out of the water, and if somehow we could do a hocus-pocus prayer and that water turns holy water, and the dirty secret, it just came out of the same faucet, you know, in the sink. If that water could wash your sins away, why did Jesus die? Somewhere last night, you know, not too far from here, someone walked into a house of religion and they walked up to a booth where there's a curtain and on the other side of that curtain, there is a man that is no different than any man in this building. No different, no different, no better, no different. A sinner. And somebody walked up to that curtain and maybe even got on their knees and then they said, 
I confess that I did this and this and this and that and that and that. And when it was all said and done, the guy behind the curtain told them to pray this, give this, do this. And then he said, I absolve you. Why did Jesus die? I'm sorry, if, if my brother could take you and put you in the water, pull you out of the water, or, or somebody who does another way could sprinkle water in your head and turn you into a Christian, if you could go into a house of religion and fall on your knees and confess your sins to a mortal man, if the guy behind the curtain could absolve you, then do you see why did Jesus die? Because everywhere you go in the Bible, right, it's Calvary, 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 Calvary. And the first four books of the New Testament really all just lead up to Calvary. It's the pivot of human history. Uh, starting in the book of Acts, it is people looking back at the cross. It's Jesus who saved me and now we're going to serve him in our church. It's, it's all about the cross. It's all about Calvary. So why Calvary if there was another way to heaven? Certainly God, if there was some other way for a human to be saved, if it was putting water in a baby or dunking him in a tank or confessing or filling the blank with any religious deed, don't you think that God would have chosen that? But instead of the bloody horrific cross of Calvary, why did Jesus die? Paul says, I love you. You're my brothers. You're my babies. And I don't care if it's Peter. Man, I love Peter. But I don't care if it is Peter. I don't care if it's the conference speakers, the seminary, the scholars. I don't care if it's an angel from heaven with a glow about his face. He said, if they're preaching something else, you listen to your Bible and not to them. If you will not be fooled and if I will not be bewitched, question one, what does the Bible say? Question two, why did Jesus die? And let me give you a third one. And could I just say one more time, the order is everything here. You don't start with number three. You go to the Bible first. And when the Bible settles it, it's settled. After the word of God, if there's a question, go to Calvary. Calvary will fix it. If there's still a question, here's a third thing. In verse two, this only what I learn of you, receive ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. So number one, what does the Bible say? Number two, after you go to the Bible, why did Jesus die? Number two, after you go to Calvary, then you get to number three, and that would be, well, how were you saved? How did you receive the spirit of God? It would appear that there were some teachers back then, like we have today in our society, who says, oh, no, 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 no. No, you need Jesus to be saved, but after you are saved, there has to be a, a second work where you receive the spirit of God. Nonsense. You know, the Bible could not be more clear in Romans. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to God. You know, when somebody is born again, they are born again by the Spirit of God into the family of God. And look, it's not like the Spirit of God's got five toes in and five toes out. I mean, either he is in us or he is not in us. It's kind of like the lights in his building. They're on or they're off. They're not half on. They're either on or they're off. It's light or it's dark. Either the Spirit of God is in me or he's not in me. You can't have half of them. You can't have... Now... There's another question, how much of me does he control? That's a very different and fair question. But when somebody is saved, they have the Spirit of God indwelling in them. And if they don't have the Spirit of God indwelling in them, they may have religion, but they don't have Bible salvation. So Paul said, you know, for all the works and the doctrine that's being taught, how did you receive the Spirit of God? Did you do some work or was it by grace through faith? And of course, the answer is for by grace through faith, you're saved. And it's by grace through faith that we receive the spirit of God. It happened the moment we are saved. So you see what Paul is saying. He is saying, in a sense, I fear lest your minds be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And no matter what the doctor says, the professor says, the scholar says, the blogger says, the writer at Amazon says, no matter what the guy on TV or the radio says, 
he says, you just go back, number one, to your Bible, then you go to Calvary, and then number three, if there's still questions, go back to the simplicity of the day you were saved. You know, when we got saved, it was pretty much because all the complicated stuff we rejected and all the works of righteousness and all the human ideas. And we realized, you know, the bottom line simplicity of this is that I am a helpless sinner who can't save myself. And Jesus is not a way to heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He died. He rose again. I am not trusting me. I am trusting him to wash my sins away. It's so simple, it's so plain. And yet sometimes the longer we go on, the more complicated it gets, you know? Uh, every now and then I read a book, you know, and some missionary will say, oh, you know, people in Bolivia can't get saved until you have a nine-month course, you know? And, and by the time you're done, your head's exploding and there's, there's like a million and one things you gotta know before you get saved. Brother, in the Bible, all you had to know is I'm the sinner and Jesus is the Savior and I can't save myself. Not by works that I have done, Jesus only him. And sometimes our minds get corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul, to these people he loves, said, I don't want you to be fooled, and I don't want you to be bewitched. So number one, always, every time, go to your Bible. What does the Bible say? And number two, go to Calvary. Calvary's going to fix the problem. Then number three, go back to that simple moment in time when you had to block out all the complexities of religion, and you had to block out all the human teachings and the philosophies of men and it was just you and your sin and Jesus the Savior just go back to that day you were saved because contrary to what some of us guys say and think when it comes to walking with Jesus and being saved there's a glorious simplicity back to the Bible back to Calvary back to that day that we were saved it's how you keep from being fooled and bewitched years ago the story was told and I emphasize the phrase the story was told I get the idea this thing might have gotten to one or two sermon illustration books. And when a story gets to a sermon illustration book, it is Katie bar the door. It's over now. Brother, that story's going to take on a life of his own. So uh, a lot of these stories are alleged, but this one's one of those alleged that, that supposedly now Napoleon had come to his empire and, and he was in a little village and he was meeting people and everybody had come out to meet the great emperor Napoleon and, and standing at attention was an old man, a one-armed old soldier. He had on his royal uniform and he was standing at attention, a one-armed man now to meet his emperor and, and Napoleon supposedly, 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 remember that, saw the guy and he walked up to him and started up a conversation and he said, sir, I noticed you have lost an arm. Have you lost that in battle? And the old soldier said, yes, sire, I lost it at the Battle of Austerlitz. But he said, that was a small price to pay for the nation and the emperor that I love. And Napoleon noticed on his dress uniform that he had a, a medal of honor and he pointed at that. He said, and because you have lost your arm, is that why you received that honor and, and, that, and that medal? And he said, yes, sire, but that's just a small token to pay for the love that I have for you and my nation. And Napoleon supposedly was so stirred by this guy. He says, you must be the kind of guy who wishes he didn't lose both arms for his country. And the guy was supposed to have said, well, had I lost both arms for my country, sire, what would my honor have been? And supposedly Napoleon said, I'd give you the double legion of honor. And so as the story goes, the guy said, fine. He picked up a sword and cut off his other arm. Boy, did that story get told. Until one day, somebody said, how did he cut off his other arm? <laughs> Never mind. Your wife will explain it to you at lunch. How did he cut off his other arm? 
And, you know, that's kind of Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 1. It's kind of like Paul saying, and remember, this, this all happened before Al Gore invented the Internet, okay? This, <laughs> I mean, if it was bad then, it's bad on steroids now. And, you know, oh, they got the nudist, and this guy is so angelic. I mean, just look at his hairdo. And, and Dr. Peter, and you know who's speaking at the conference? And everybody is all stirred up. And there's Paul saying, simmer down, calm down, don't be fooled, don't be bewitched. What does the Bible say? Why did Jesus die? How'd you get saved? Or in other words, every now and then you got to ask, how did he cut off his arm? It's how you keep from being fooled and bewitched. Father, help us. We desire to honor our God. And, and Lord, while...